So the Gospel of John, as we continue our break in our going through the Bible, we normally have just gone Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, but we're taking a break as we kind of move up towards the Easter celebration with Good Friday, Holy Week, and Easter Sunday. So I'm at home Friday night and I'm studying, and about 6.30 I get a call and it says, Pastor Brian, now he never calls me at home on a Friday night, but his wife's out at the retreat, so I figure he has nothing to do and he needs something. And so he asked me the question. He said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm studying. He's, I'm teaching Sunday. He says, what are you studying? I said, the Gospel of John. He says, yeah, well, what part? I said, no, no, the Gospel of John. He says, well, yeah, but what part? What chapter? I said, the Gospel of John. He said, the whole thing? And I said, yeah, the whole thing. And he said, are you okay? And I said, well, I said, you know, I've got this young pastor up there, and he came up with this idea of taking a look at the four Gospels, the four weeks before Easter, to kind of get us thinking about Jesus again. And so I told him the topics, mountain climbing with Jesus. I told him Pastor Brandon and laid this uh, series out for us and braving the wilderness with Jesus and storytelling with Jesus. He says, man, that sounds cool. And so I sent him a link and I said, be sure and listen to side B. Now, how many of you have listened to side B? Pretty cool. There's pretty, pretty encouraging things that are there. So, Pastor um, Brandon, if you're around, Pastor Brian might be calling you and recruiting you. But anyhow, um, that's what we're going to do with the Gospel of John. So in Matthew, we went mountain climbing with Jesus, if you'll remember that, up on the mountain to find the presence of God. In the Old Testament, we know from the prophets that Eden was on a mountain, and we know that Mount Sinai was used, and that's where the law was given. In Matthew, we know that Jesus went up on a mountain to give the Sermon on the Mount. We know that he went up on a mountain to be transfigured, and it was on a mountain where he commissioned his disciple. So we might say that Jesus said, come up on the mountain and I will build your character. Because we talked a lot about character in that first lesson. In Mark, we look at braving the wilderness with Jesus. He was led by the Spirit into the desert and he was tempted by Satan. And we saw in that study that Jesus didn't fit in very well. He didn't fit in with the religious leaders. He didn't fit in with his family and the common folk. He didn't fit in with those in in, uh, Galilee and he didn't fit in with those in Jerusalem. So Jesus might have said, hey, come and brave the wilderness with me and have courage rather than comfort. That was what we got from Mark. In Luke, we heard storytelling with Jesus. The gospel means God's story, just like history is his story. It's not just a presentation of facts and details and information, but it's a story, a living, breathing story. We heard those stories as, as Jesus was on the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. And a couple that Pastor Brandon mentioned was the Good Samaritan. And he related that story and something from it that we could use. The other one was the persistent neighbor and the truth that this story taught us. Jesus said, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. Using the example of the persistent neighbor. How many of us have gotten... Tired of asking, tired of asking about the Lord for the same things, the things that are perplexing to us. Be persistent, continue to ask. And so the truth that was taught in that study from Luke was for everyone, like the persistent neighbor, who asks, receives, and he who seeks, find, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? 
Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So tonight we're looking at the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. And we've entitled this message, Encouraging, Engaging Humanity with Jesus. Mountain climbing, braving the wilderness, storytelling, and now engaging humanity. Humanity. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for these four gospels and the story they present of your son and your great love for us. May we glean what you want us to glean from it tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So while the other three gospels, uh, the eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts, tell the story of Jesus' coming and going, Matthew started off with the genealogy of Jesus. Mark uh, launches right off into the gospel, into the story of Jesus, and Luke began with the story of Jesus' birth. But John begins with the pre-incarnate, the pre-creation existence of the Son, establishing the deity of Jesus. So it has a little different bent to it. He was living in the world the world that he made. And the preamble of the first chapter of John, if you don't have your Bibles open, turn to the first chapter, it ends with these words that we know so well in the 14th verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What great words for us to know that he has come. And John is going to explain the purpose of his coming and becoming flesh and dealing, uh, and dealing with us. John the Baptist in the rest of that chapter declares that Jesus is the Lamb of God. In verse 29, at the end it says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then in verse 36, at G, as Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, verse 35, and the next day John stood with two disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked. He said, Behold the Lamb of God. So right away we see this interaction, this engaging with humanity that Jesus takes. So these two disciples heard him speak, and they followed. And actually in the rest of this chapter, Jesus is going to engage humanity three different Disciples are going to be talked about. And we're going to see the way that he does this. As I said, it's hard to go through a whole book like this in one night. So just hang on and we'll do the best that we can to get you through it. So in verses 38 and 39, the, the two disciples that are following Jesus, Jesus turned and seeing them followed and said to, and, and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, Where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. And they came and saw where he was. Simple question, what do you think? What do you seek? And a very simple answer, come and see. A few verses later, Andrew brings Peter to him in verse 40 to 42. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Brought by his brother, 
a very simple and direct statement, and no dialogue in that case. Then Philip brings Nathanael in verses 45 to 51. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathan answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things, things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. A whole back and forth with Nathaniel. So Jesus engaged three members of society, three members of humanity. One, a simple question and a simple answer. One, a direct statement. And one, a dialogue, a give and take, a back and forth. Something different for each one. Jesus seems to know how to go about meeting people and their needs. That's one of the things we'll see as we go on. Now, in chapter 2, there's two completely different engagements. You know these stories very, very well. The first one is the wedding where he makes water into wine and provides for the family and the friends that are gathered for the wedding. The second one is he goes up to Jerusalem and he clears out the temple. Wow, what are two different ways of meeting humanity? I'm going to a wedding. I'm going to make water into wine. I'm going to have a good time at this party. The next thing I do is I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to walk into the temple and I'm going to clear it out. So he's dealing with humanity in different ways. He seems to know what they need. At the, at the um, wedding, he has a few words with his mother. Look at verse 4. Uh, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does, this, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to do. She had a few words to say herself. You know, here's a good example of Jesus meeting humanity, or maybe here's a way when we represent Jesus to humanity. Has anybody ever come up to you and says, well, what do you think about that other church that just does this thing, and they, they really have this thing about Mary? And how do you respond? How do you engage with humanity in a situation like that? What I've found is a good answer is something like this. You know, I, Mary's in the Bible, and she's in this story, and she said some words, and I try to follow them. You do what Mary says? Absolutely. She said, whatever he says to do, do it. <laughs> what a great way to start a conversation with somebody about Mary, the mother of Christ, without having that defensive approach that we so often take. Uh, yeah, she's in the Bible, and she says this statement, and I try to follow it every day of my life. Well, you do? You, can, you don't know how many great conversations you can have with people from the Orthodox world by t- taking that kind of an approach. Jesus came to meet humanity with a lot of different approaches as we're going to continue to see as we go through the study. A few words. 
At the temple, he had a few words for the merchants. Look at verse 16. Uh, Verse 15, and when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers of money and overthrew the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Completely different way that he's engaging with humanity because they are violating the temple of God. They're they're, they're, violating. they're dis- they're uh, disgracing. They're just dis- they're just disgusting in the temple. What the things that they're doing, and so he throws them out, and he just says, "Don't let this be." It's interesting stories, but you know what? The next contrasts are even more. Wait till you see these two. One happens in chapter three, and one happens in chapter four. Uh, you know, in the men's study, we have this statement that we use as we teach, and what amazes me is that every guy who gets up and teaches makes the same statement. This is the most important part of the whole Bible, what we're teaching today. These stories are really the most important part of the Bible. Isn't that what we say, Mike? Something like that? So chapter 3, you know the story of Nicodemus, an important religious ruler, and he comes to Jesus. In chapter 4, just the opposite. A woman at the well, an immoral, common uh, person. Jesus engages Nicodemus with the most simple truth. He's actually upper class. He's taught in the law. He's respected by the Jews. And Jesus comes to him with something so simple. He says, you know what, Nick? You must be born again. What do you mean? What about the prophets? What about Abraham and Isaac and Moses? And what about David and Solomon and all the things that we know from all the studies we have? You must be born again. And Jesus explains that simple concept to him. You must believe in God's Son to have everlasting life. Nicodemus was a learned teacher of the law. So Jesus did talk to him in this dialogue about the kingdom of God and the Spirit and heaven and Moses and those things that were important. But let's read part of the part of the story, verses 9 to 17. So Nicodemus answered him and said to him, How can these things be about being born again? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you a teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and do not receive, and, and, they do, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that, that, that the world through him might be saved. So very simple truth, that's what he does with Nicodemus. Now with the woman at the well, she's lower class, probably unlearned in the law. She's despised by the Jews because she's a Samaritan. He asks her for help, says, give me a drink. But Jesus talks to her about things like drinking water. Your, uh, the well that she's by and tells her you will thirst again if you drink this water. Things that she can understand. 
But, and he also explains to her the gift of God being living water, and you'll never thirst again. And as I was looking at those two completely different engagements that the Lord had as he engaged with humanity, I noticed this about Nicodemus. He was a te- This is what Nicodemus said about Jesus. He was a teacher come from God. No one can do these things unless, he, unless God is with him. But with the woman, he was weary traveler on a journey. And he sat down and he needed a drink. So he was very human. He was very needy. He, he had some, he showed his physical signs there. With Nicodemus, the ruler from the Jews, there was no results of the engagement recorded. Nothing was there. But with the woman, look at this in chapter 4, verse 27. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? And then in verse 28, the woman then left his water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all these things I have ever did. Could this be the Christ? And then down in verse 39 to 42, and many of the Samaritans of the city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed here two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we, we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So two different people, Nicodemus, who knew everything about the law, who was rich, who was famous, who was somebody, and the woman at the well. Jesus engaged with their humanity in ways that met their needs. So in chapter 5 of John, all the way through chapter 12, John is writing of the opposition of the Son of God. The Son of God is going to be opposed in these next five chapters. And there's so many encounters in here of how Jesus meets humanity that we could never cover them all. But the first one I really like, so we're going to look at that one. And this is about the man at the well. And it starts in chapter 5. Jesus came to Jerusalem during one of the feasts. And he asked this guy at the well, do you want to be made well? Now that's a rhetorical question for Jesus. For a couple reasons. First, because he's God and he knows. But this guy has been at the well for 38 years. Well, if you're going to be... I mean, he's been sick for 38 years. He's at the well waiting for the angel to come down and stir the water. So those two things would tell you this guy wants to be made well. So Jesus just simply says, take up your bed and walk. And the man is healed. Then the Jews took issue. It's the Sabbath. Now, could you imagine being that man? You haven't walked in 38 years. You've been waiting. This man comes in and says, take up your bed and walk. What are you going to do? Are you going to do what he told you to do? Of course you are. Um, They asked, who told you this? He says, I don't know. It's just a man. Later, uh, the the Jews persecuted Jesus in verses um, 15 to 18, chapter 5. Um, In verse 15, then they departed and they told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well 
For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he said to, that God was his father, making himself equal to God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do, and whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For this reason the Jews persecuted him. From here to the end, it talks about this persecution. So Jesus was able to engage with a man needing healing, and he engaged with a bunch of Jews who were critical about this. Look at verses, well, the one verse we just read, 19, jump down to 24. Again, he says, most assuredly, or in King James, it would probably say, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in them, who sent me, has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And in verse 25, most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And then over in verse 36, but I have a greater witness than John for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any times nor seen his form, but you do not have his word, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. Verse 39, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. So he is dealing with humanity, with these critical Jewish leaders. And the word for Jew there is basically elders or leaders. And he's dealing with them by coming right back at them and saying, it's not about what you know in the scriptures. It's about who I am. The scriptures talk of me. So Jesus was able to engage with a man who needed healing and with the Jewish leaders who were very critical because he did it on the Sabbath. In chapter 6, Jesus is going to deal with his disciples. In verse 34, he makes one of his I am statements. Then they, they speaking of the, of the disciples, Lord, give us, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, in verse 35, I am the bread of life. And of course, he's speaking spiritually that in the, with the bread of life, you're never going to hunger, you're never going to thirst. He wasn't talking to them about the physical bread. The Jews complained because he said, they even murmured among themselves, so he says it again. Look at verse 40. One, so the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And in verse 43, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur, do not murmur amongst yourself. And then in verse 48, he says it again, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat and not die. I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of 
the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Wow, those are some pretty powerful words to be speaking to Jewish people who know that the life is in the blood and who have been told to stay away from all the blood. So he's doing that. Now we celebrate communion every Sunday night. And when we take the bread and when we take the cup, we're remembering what Jesus did for us. We're remembering the the sacrament that he established when he took the Passover and he gave us our communion service. So these Jews quarreled among themselves But he caused them to question what he was saying. Another way he engaged humanity. You know, I think today there's a great debate going on in our society, in our culture, in our country, and maybe even around the world, a debate going on about who are we as Christians and what do we believe. And some people are trying to pigeonhole all Christians into a category. Well, you're bigoted and you're biased and you're this or you're that. And we're not being received because we have the truth. And so this is something we're going to have to deal with as the culture continues to grow because it's going to become more and more unpopular to be a Christian. You're going to have more and more people challenging you because of your beliefs. Because they're going to say that how could you be a Christian when God has done the things that he's done or he allows the things that he's, he's done? Or how can you be a Christian when you single out these people or those people and you seem to come against them as Christians? We're going to need to know how to address that. The one thing that I got out of this study about Jesus engaging humanity is he engaged all of humanity. He engaged the woman at the well. He engaged Nicodemus. He engaged the man who needed healing. He got the Jews arguing amongst themselves. He was willing to get engaged in everything and everyone. And sometimes I think we're a little bit too closed in, a little too careful. We're not, we're not out there enough. And then if somebody has a different opinion than us, we tend to want to cut them off. We want to use the old, well, the Bible says. Well, the Bible says is a good thing. But the Bible says, can be said, just like we did with Mary, that little thing about Mary. If we say it right, we can say the Bible says some quotes of of Mother Mary, and I try to do it every day. Well, if you're speaking to a Catholic, you got their ear. You got their ear. And when you say that he said, whatever he says to do, do it then that kind of gives you a connection and you can start to talk about the other issues. You don't have to, we don't have to fight through those things. Let's, let's come to grips with it. So as we have to deal with new things in society, um, we have to be careful that we don't categorize sins that we hate more than we hate other sins. All sin is bad. All sin is what caused Jesus to go to the cross. Little sins and big sins, okay? Just saying that is wrong because all sin is sin. Now, I do believe there are sins that have different consequences. Some consequences are more painful than others, but sin is still sin. And so we, we're going to have to learn how to do these debates in, in a way like Jesus did where he engaged these people. 
Jesus went on and explained that he was speaking of the Lord's table and its importance. And that's why we do it every Sunday night, is to remind ourselves that his broken body and his filled blood are so important for us. In verses 60 to 66, he turns this now to the disciples. And he says, therefore, in verse 60, therefore many of the disciples, when they heard this uh, said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? If the Spirit who gives life in the flesh profits nothing, the works which I speak to you, the words which I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But they are some of you who uh, do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that did not believe and who, they were, and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been given, granted him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? So here's a little pruning that Jesus is doing as he's engaging humanity. First he talks to this group of of disciples that were left. Some took off and left. There's a group left. He says, are you guys going to leave me too? And some did. And then he turns to the 12. Now 11 of these guys plus Paul are going to turn the world totally upside down in a little while. So whatever he is working on, however he is engaging with those 12, he is getting a, co- a, a, a commitment from them that is going to last. And these guys are all going to die a martyr's death for them. So engage the 12 with a pretty straightforward discussion. Do you also want to go away? And we'll talk about them a little bit more a little bit later. So John chapter 8. Jesus was in the temple teaching. Good thing to be doing. He's minding his own business. Be kind of like being at Denny's and having breakfast. You're just sitting there and you're minding your own business. And then the scribes and the Pharisees come in and they bring this woman that was taken in the very act of adultery. Pretty horrible sin. These guys must have really thought it was one of the most horrible sins in the whole world because they're making such a big stink about it. But it's a little different situation. They came to him... And our question would be, does he engage or not? Have we ever walked by a situation where we probably should have engaged and we probably should have engaged humanity with our Christian beliefs, but we walked away? Jesus doesn't. He engages. And you know the situation. He writes on the ground. Everybody likes to kind of hypothesize or try to figure out, what did he write? Did he write their sins or the names of their girlfriends or their phone numbers? Or what did he put down there that caused these guys to to just walk away? But he did engage. And in verse 7 and 9, we read this. So when when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground, Then those who heard it, being convicted of their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last, and just was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And doggone it, I was going to bring that. I have it at home on my bookshelf. I have the original first stone. 
I have this big white rock, and on it it says first stone, and on the other side it has this verse. And I was going to bring it to you, so I, I remind myself always that I have... It's a big, heavy stone, too. It's not a little pebble. It's a big, heavy, sharp stone. How many of us have said that when people are, when people are trying to reproof us or rebuke us? You know, if you guys see a fault in each other or in me, and you're trying to correct or reproof, then we should be willing to receive that. You know, we may not accept it completely. We may deal with it. But if you're doing it in the right way, if you're speaking the truth in love, we should be looking at that. But I've said this before to people. You know what? You're not so perfect. You think you can throw the first stone? And that's really not the way that we want to do it. But Jesus, in this case, is defending this woman. And at the same time that he's defending her, He's rebuking these scribes and these Pharisees. So he is engaging with humanity in a different way. And look how he engages the woman in verse 10. When Jesus raised up himself up, he saw no one but the woman. And he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one, con- and no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So he engages the woman completely different, forgiving. And I think he was very encouraging to her. He told her to go and have life. Don't be caught up with the sin anymore. Don't be, don't be pulled down by it, but go and sin no more. Go and have a good life. So what, what an engaging Lord we have, just able to go from one person to another person and meet them with what they needed in their state, whatever state they were in. So, so he continues to engage in humanity. And then also in this section from chapter 5 to 12, talking about those who, the opposition that's going on, one of the stories that we all love, probably one of, again, one of those most famous ones is chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus. You know the story quite well. And I was kind of reminded of something that Jesus had already engaged with his family. So this isn't like the first time that Jesus is talking to his family. It says in verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So there was already a, a relationship. There was already some engaging that had taken place. He gets the message. He delays for two more days. He engages his disciples and has this little conversation about, hey, we're going to go back there, back to Judea, back where they tried to kill us, back where they tried to stone you. Thomas says, well, let's go and let's die with them, you know, because, you know, he was doubting Thomas and he was going to go and die with them because it had such a rough time when they were there before. So Jesus arrives and right away he engages Martha, whom he loves, with this conversation in verse, starting with verse... um, 20. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you 
believe this. When Jesus arrives, Martha engages him. Now, ladies, I bet you you have asked yourself this question. Am I a Martha or am I a Mary? You know, there's another story in the Bible that talks about Mary and Martha and how busy they were. But let's look at how Jesus engages Mary. Starting with verse... um, uh, Well, let's start with verse um, 31. Then the Jews who were with her, the ones who were mourning with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Same question, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, Jesus, when she saw her weeping, and the Jews who came also weeping with her, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Notice how she engaged him. She fell at his feet and worshipped him. That's what Mary did. Mary was the one that sat in the house and waited And then here Jesus shows his compassion or his sorrow. Maybe compassion for the family because he sees that they have lost their loved one and they're they're having their grief. Or maybe sorrow because he sees the people around who are mourning and he understands that they don't get it and their unbelief. If they really got it, why would you want to bring Lazarus back? If he is in a better place, if he is on his way to being with, with the Lord because he's looking forward to the cross, then why bring him back? So whatever the, the purpose is here is that Jesus wept. Jesus wept compassion. Either way, Jesus is engaging humanity. And this takes us to chapter 13, which brings us to the third section of John. The preparation of the disciples by the Son of God. Remember first, it was the presentation of the Son of God to humanity. Then it was the opposition to the Son of God by humanity. And now it's preparing the disciples by the Son of God for humanity. And we'll mention something about these chapters later that will help you with your preparation for humanity. Palm Sunday and Holy Week. So in chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus now says that his hour has come. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to his last week. And he's spending time with his disciples. In these next few chapters, as you read these over, I'm going to encourage you at the end to read these chapters as we approach um, Good, uh, Good Friday and um, the Passion Week and, and Easter. This might be a good time for you to ask yourself the question, what would Jesus do? Because we're going to see what Jesus does as we go through these. So in 13.1, he says, my time has come. And then he, in, he engages his disciples by being a servant and setting examples. So let's look at chapter 13 and the story about washing their feet. Starting with verse 2. 
And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from the supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. You know, I still remember, I don't know, a couple, three, four years ago, Pastor Brandon was teaching a subject and he was talking about the climax of a story. And we always think of the climax of the story as some big high point. But God went, Jesus went from glory to this scene, washing your feet, washing the disciples' feet to glory. And so this becomes the climax of that story, this, this point where he humbles himself to that point. I still remember that. You remember that, Brent? Did I say it right? Close? Huh? You don't remember. I remember. So, so Jesus, let's see. So he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand, but now you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no part of me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs not to wash but his feet, but he is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, and, um, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taking his garment and sat down again, he said to them, and he began to talk. To, and he began to talk to them. Jesus engaged his disciple by being their servant. He set an example for them and for us. Sometimes engaging in, with humanity for us requires us to do this. In 36 to 38, he speaks the truth to them. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him and said, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Engaging with humanity sometimes requires us to speak the truth in love. And then in chapter 14, 1 through verse 6, engaged with humanity sometimes is required this. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place for you. And I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him who has sent me. Sometimes in our engaging humanity, 
We are needing to bring comfort. We are needing to bring assurance. We are needing to be able to tell a biblical story or a biblical principle to someone and bring them comfort. That's important for us. Engaging with humanity requires this. And then in chapter 18 to the end of the book, the third section, we see Jesus' most engaging acts with humanity. From this point on, he acts um, in a way that is just amazing to us, in a way that I hope in the next couple weeks we can really spend some extra time looking at how Jesus engaged with humanity. Here's a few that I found. He allowed himself to be betrayed. He allows himself to be unjustly accused and tried. He allows himself to be ridiculed by the Jews and the Romans. He engaged with humanity by allowing himself to be scourged. He allows himself to be crucified with criminals. He allows himself to give up the ghost and to die. And you know, there's two different kinds of death. There's a physical death. Your heart stops beating. Your brain stops working. And then there's a spiritual death, separation from God. Man is separated from God until he believes. And when he becomes a Christian, that separation is over with. At this point, Jesus had to die and die. Because he had to have that moment of separation. He allows himself to be separated from the Father. All of these were the ways that Jesus engaged in humanity. And he fulfilled John 1.14. The word was made flesh. And it dwelt among us. Engaged with us, if you would. And we beheld his glory. Full of grace and truth. So remember I said that John would show us the purpose of that statement, that we would be held his glory. And this is the purpose that John wrote the Gospel of John in chapter 20, verse 30. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in engaging with humanity in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these engagements with humanity are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in him. Yes, I paraphrase that uh, uh, slightly, so that's okay. I, you, you know what I was doing there. So John told us what the purpose of his writing was. Jesus' engagement in humanity was so that we might believe. So as we look back on the four Gospels that we've studied in these past four weeks, mountain climbing with Jesus and braving the wilderness with Jesus and storytelling with Jesus and now engaging humanity with Jesus, we should be well prepared to contemplate in these final weeks of the Lord's life, of God's dwelling with humanity, of God's engaging with humanity than we were before because we've had this refresher of these gospels we've 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 read them and we've talked about them so my encouragement for you and I we, that we would suggest that this week you linger in chapters 13 to 17 there's a reading assignment in your bulletin but read these chapters 13 14 15 16 and 17 Jesus preparing for what he's going to go through between good friday and easter and preparing his disciples for that and then next week 
read chapters 18 to 21 and read them over. You can, you know, one chapter a day, you could read it morning and night. You could actually do it twice. So those were the final weeks. Or, or was it? So after Palm Sunday next week, after Easter the next week, 2,000 years ago in Jesus' life, in the book of Acts, the church is born. How? By us engaging humanity with Jesus. That's what we have to do. That's been going on for 2,000 years. And I believe with the way the culture is changing right now, more than ever, we're going to need to be prepared to engage with humanity with Jesus, to engage humanity with Jesus, to be able to talk to the woman at the well or the religious leader or the politician or whoever. We're going to need to know how to address them. We're going to need to know how Jesus did it so we would know how we're going to do it. So let's pray.